Hello listener and welcome to Well Now You Know What You're Gonna Do About It. I am Kalkadan Legessa, 28, a social entrepreneur, blackety black and very much ready for the world to change for the better. Welcome to my podcast. In this episode we speak with Sophie Williams of Official Millennial Black on her experiences as a black woman in the space of written and online activism. We discuss her book anti-racist ally in her upcoming book, Millennial Black. We're speaking one day after white supremacist groups broke into the Senate House in Washington DC with little consequences. The focus of this conversation is in answering the questions those practicing allyship often have. Well, what if I get it wrong? As you'll see, it turns out that that's no reason not to stop. Listen on, like and subscribe, and for more, you can find me at our business page at Wow Sancho on Instagram and my personal page at Calcadan Legessa Makure to keep the conversation going. Getting somewhere. Yeah, we all up in this shit. Yeah. I had to tap to settle down with a weapon kit. I live for the grind and I grind to live. I want to do the things that matter to me. Live like a good king. So first of all, hello Sophie. Um, thank you so much for being with me today. Um, so first of all, I'd just like to ask you how how you're doing. Hi. I mean, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing really well, thank you. It is the end of the first week of 2021, yeah. um, which has been a wild ride, but um, I guess we're here so far. And yeah, I'm I'm really well, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. I can't believe it's been seven days. You know, I feel like I've been through a battleground already. um both kind of personally and publicly too um so we're speaking a day after there has been an attempted coup of the u.s senate office i'm you know i'm really curious to know how you digest what's happened and how how you're feeling at the moment yeah i feel like so much of the conversation that we had in 2020 was like we just have to get to the end of 2020 and everything's going to be fine yeah and i think there were so many people who've been doing this work and having these conversations and sort of you know, being part of this, who have said, like, the change of a year is not a thing, it's not something that's going to sort of change or end or stop anything. And I think, I think 2021 has already, as you say, in just the first seven days, shown us that. Um, And I, maybe you can hear my cat. So this is lockdown life. So, you know, my cat is very much a part of part of my community at the moment. Mm. Um, But yeah, I think, we all would have really loved for the end of last year to have been sort of a reset button, but that is not where we ended up. And I think like everyone else, I was watching what happened at the Capitol sort of open mouthed. Um, And I think it's a really weird balance of shocked, not shocked. Mm. Um, How did you find it? What did you think about it when it was going on? Yeah, I, you know, I think I, I felt petrified, like really just scared and, you know, plunged back into a level of trauma that, you know, I hoped I'd escaped last year. And I, I know I, I completely was one of those people hoping to wake <laughs> up in the new year with, you know, renewed strength or, you know, with new, renewed optimism. Um, and I do try to remain optimistic, but it's challenging. It's really challenging. And I think what yesterday showed us is um, essentially the contradiction in experiences of black and white Americans and how they're treated by the police force and media uh, in such a like 
blatantly obvious, obvious, clear, clear way. And it's always difficult to see, like whether or not we're surprised by it, it's always super challenging to um, to be exposed to it. Yeah. And it doesn't have to like be surprising to be heartbreaking. Yeah, right. And then then we have to deal with how others respond to it too. And I think that's its own kind of exposure to challenge. So I think what's what was really interesting about last year was this kind of renewed optimism for um, being anti-racist, being allies, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, you've put together in anti-racist ally, you've put together this incredible guideline, guidebook as to how someone can understand that topic. So could you tell me about how, what it was that drove you to put it together in this way? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm as surprised to have written anti-racist ally as anyone else, to be honest. And so the way it came about is I already had a book deal. I had a book deal for a book called Millennial Black, which is coming out in April, I think, of 2021. Um, And that is sort of a really quite sort of academic, sort of research heavy book about Black women's um, experiences in the workplace. Mm. about sort of what struggles we face sort of sort of academically research based sort of um quantitative like this is what the black female experience is even if like every element of something doesn't touch someone's lives these are the things that sort of do disproportionately affect black women as a group Mm. um so I was looking at that and so in order to be able to sort of have a a purchase base for that essentially because I felt like so many people who were doing this work and having these conversations when I sold the book which was in December of 2019 Mm. and I started working on the proposal I'd I'd say about a year or a year and a half before that so this has been a long time in the making Um, in order to sort of build a audience for that book I was like okay I'm gonna just like get the Instagram handle and Mm. I'm gonna sort of slowly start to build up a community where I can sort of talk to people Mm. And then after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey, Belly Majinga, sort of and countless other people's names who we don't know and we don't say and we don't sort of keep in our mouths in the same way. I um, went to um, HarperCollins, who I who I already had that deal with and said, I know that I'm meant to bring out Millennial Black and it's meant to be my first book, it's meant to be my debut, but actually something really important is happening here and mm. we'd be really remiss to not have that be part of the conversation. Mm. And they, to their credit, were good enough to say, yes, absolutely. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna pause for a minute on sort of the process with uh, Millennial Black and give you, me, the time to write Anti-Racist Ally. The Anti-Racist Ally really wasn't planned in the same sort of meticulous, long proposal um, process that um, Millennial Black was, it really was a quick reaction to the conversation that we found ourselves having because for so long people from racially marginalized backgrounds and black women have been saying these are the things that are happening to us and we have to listen and people haven't wanted to listen and I felt that if the terrible sort of convergence of circumstance of having black people continually murdered on film and having a global pandemic that meant people were at home and willing to engage in social issues in a way that they nece- that they hadn't necessarily done before. If those two things had sort of been put in my lap 
and suddenly people were following me which I never expected then I needed Mm. to do what I could to sort of take that conversation offline and as Mm. far as I could so that's really where anti-racist ally comes from. I mean I think that kind of explains I feel like this book is it would enable people reading it to be ready for a book like Millennial Back you Mm. know because it it gives you know the the average person and exposure to the concepts of anti-racism to the extent that you would hope that when you were then asking them for you know extra attention or extra care mm-hmm. or to begin to change that they will have you know flex some of those muscles already and had some of those internal conversations already yeah. um so that's really wonderful to hear um I, what i particularly enjoyed about it was that uh, i think sometimes when we talk about allyship we, we fail to provide enough of a kind of a wide context of what, what that actually means and how much mm. change it requires of individuals and how much action it requires of individuals. Like, so for example, um, there are campaigns that promote you know, buying from black businesses like mine, and those are fantastic, right? They're great. But also if you're buying from black businesses, but in, you know, in another context, you're you know, causing harm, then is that really for the best? So, yeah. yeah, so I don't know what to, you know, I think one one of the challenges that I have is just constantly having the, the strength to ask enough of people, you know? Like yeah. you ask for one thing because you feel like, okay, well maybe that's the area in which there can be some action. Maybe that's the area of attention at this point, but you know, deep and down, deep down that like, there is a lack of like a holistic approach that probably will cause like limitations in the future. And what I really, really enjoy about this is that I think it covers, you know, everything that one would hope for. And, you know, one hopes that if they read a book like it, that they can go away and kind of be able to address some of the issues. You perhaps talk about some of the key lessons you want people to take away from, from the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I really chime with what you're saying because you know, it is very much an introduction. I did have sort of an incredibly short time to write it. So it's always good to hear from people who think that it, it does good because my concern about it, having that sort of very short turnaround time on it was that actually I'd missed something really important or that I'd say something that I, you know, the language around it changes so much and so importantly so quickly that um, that it's hard to put something into like a physical long-term format because social we can iterate and we can change we can keep you know refining that message and changing where we are but once you put something into print and send that out into a world that's a long-term thing and I kept saying to people like this has got my name on it whether I want that or not and so mm. that's really interesting and I think it's also interesting that you think it gives people a good grounding because I hope it does as well and although it's called anti-racist ally, I make a point of saying in the introduction that this sort of allyship conversation is really importantly about race in this context. But we have to all be allies to all all marginalised groups um, if we are not suffering that on our own skin and in our own lives. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that allyship conversation is, I think, just as important for the LGBTQAAP plus community for um, gender divergent people for all kinds of different sort of intersectionalities that we can sort of pull into that conversation. What I'm really enthused about the movement of um, anti-racism or practice allyship is that 
we can, I don't think we can be intersectional actors. I don't think we can drive intersectional change without practice, you know, because it's such a divergence from our usual activity or the status quo. We have to be familiar and comfortable with, um, you know, learning something new, you know, being directed in a new way and then changing our behaviour. And when you see so many people kind of open to that, you, there is hope that, you know, we can address all of these varying issues um, yeah. with with strategy and with effort. Yeah, um, and it's hard. There's so much to learn. Like you can be, I always talk to people about how you can be so sure that you're doing or saying or thinking or writing the correct thing, only to, for someone to say, actually, that's not right, or that's yeah. hurtful, or that's outdated, or whatever that is. And I think that's something that I've experienced when I first started writing on my Instagram, for example. And it's so weird, I think, to be like, my Instagram, but that's sort of like the biggest public platform that I have at the moment. So that's sort of the context that I need to put things within. Um, it was, I was talking about like minority people, minority people do this and that and feel like this and are affected by that. And, you know, someone came to me and was like, that's not appropriate language. And I was like, mm. actually, I think you'll find it is. And it's not. <laughs> I just had to. What, what language would you replace it with? I have replaced it with marginalised. Yeah. And I try, and I started replacing it with marginalized people. And now I try to replace it with people who have been marginalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that sort of constant tweaking, that constant like refining of that message mm. is I think what you're saying about the intersectional conversation. None of us are born knowing it properly. None of us are born mm. executing it properly. It's mm. just about how do I tweak? I, I started yeah. spelling women with an X and then people mm. were like, why and I was like mm. to be inclusive they're mm. like well that's not that inclusive because mm. you're making distinction between sort of different types of women I'm like oh you're right mm. and I've had to really learn to sort of in public say I thought this was right but now I don't so mm. here's what I'm going to be doing now instead and having that sort of openness to learn how mm. to have these important conversations it's something that I'm not doing perfectly, but I'm getting better at and I think is really important. Yeah, absolutely. I think it also, I think biggest fears is getting it wrong. Like I think they associate yeah. getting it wrong with almost the equivalent action of being like racist or being sexist mm -hmm. or homophobic. Um, or even if not being that, being called that. Yeah, being called that. Abs absolutely. I would say being called that above being that yeah. um, from what I've seen. And I can't relate to that because I feel like my life has been full of error and correction, mm. you know? And so if, if my fear was making a mistake, then I couldn't do anything because I'm constantly yeah. being told I'm, I'm making mistakes, you know? Yeah, um, so I think visibly showing that using your Instagram page and also having a conversation around that is really powerful too, um, to kind of, because I think people need to, so many people need to see something to learn it's possible do you know what I mean it's hard to imagine what what we might do or how we might behave if we can't see any example of it so I think that's really powerful but what what do you think about that what do you think about that fear of getting it wrong I think it's real I think people are afraid of it I think two things about it in one way I think if that fear of getting it wrong stops you from doing anything then I think it's really damaging because none of us come into this conversation or really any conversation having a complete proper unchangeable grasp of it 
because this conversation isn't history the conversation isn't over we're all still in it mm-hmm. and so you're never going to be someone who knows it all perfectly because what I thought I knew yesterday is not going to be what I know tomorrow because we are finally giving voice and platform to people who have been overlooked historically Mm. and now we have to listen to those voices and those voices thankfully are coming thick and fast and saying you have to listen to us and we have to lead that and that means constantly having to learn and relearn stuff that we thought we already knew Mm. um so there's that and then I also think that people often fear making mistakes more because of how it will make them look rather than a fear of the harm that they could cause Mm. and so I think if your fear about not knowing any not knowing everything is what if I do more harm than good I think that's a valid consideration but I think if your fear is what if people think I'm a dick Mm. that's less of a valid consideration to me because we don't make change by being safe we don't make change by protecting ourselves at Mm. the expense of all others um I think there is and it's taken me a long time to learn because I'm not a naturally very vulnerable person I'm naturally like a here's my spreadsheet and this is what we're doing by Monday um but there is I think a lot of power in vulnerability and in saying I thought this was right but it's not and I know better than that now so there's a lot of like vulnerability and there's a lot of fear in saying I thought this was right and now I know it's not right now mm. but it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of understanding and being willing to listen to be able so what that is that is a box of wine from our <laughs> go get it go get that. your Let's... wine my partner's going to get it. Okay, Okay, cool. Maybe let's just give it a couple of minutes before we pick it back up. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. (laughs) Love box of wine. (laughs) Essentials. (laughs) It's so, like, as soon as, like, the lockdown, we're, like, watching Boris on TV and, like, ordering, like, Audi wine. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone has their priority. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, so we're talking really about the fear of um, getting it wrong and how you manage that. And I think you made a really interesting distinction between why you might be afraid and how to navigate that. I think that I think that brings us nicely to some this phenomenon that I think people are describing as cancel culture. Um, and I think that drives a lot of the fear and mm. or at least it's been amalgamated with the fear. So often people describe their fears as though they're describing the fear of being cancelled. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm just really interested in knowing, you know, what do you think about cancel culture? Do you think a, you know, effective means of holding some people to account? Or do you think it's mob mentality that is ruining people's lives needlessly or something in between? Like, what are your thoughts on it? It's, it's not something that I've thought too much about. So when I do talks in businesses, do talks in companies, people hear what I say and then they think, oh, but what about if I do what you're saying and then I just get cancelled? And... I think by and large, people don't get cancelled <laughs> if they are in a position where we can see that they are actively trying to do the right thing. And so I think it's very different, it's a very different situation for being cancelled, quote unquote, for something that you do now and something that you've done in the past. I think if you can show that you're doing something now that you think is the right thing to do and you can clearly, articulately accurately justify why that is the right thing to do 
and why you have learned and moved on from that quickly, effectively, then I think that people are fine with that. For example, me talking about minority people early on, I just changed that to marginalized people and talked about why I changed that and people were very open to that. Um, But I do think, I do find it slightly muddier ground when you see people's homophobic, transphobic, anti-Semitic, anti-Black, like posts from the past. I find that harder to come to terms with because I don't think that that is as easily just a mistake. I Mm. think that you are demonstrating a truly held belief, which you now might regret, but that doesn't mean it wasn't harmful to begin with. Yeah. And so... I find those two things different. Mm. But I don't feel like I have a good, like, official stance on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I'm surprised that I asked you myself, to be honest, because it's something that I sometimes think people exaggerate rather than, like, focusing on a meaningful issue. They focus on, you know, this, you know, very exaggerated social media issue. Mm. Um, But one thing about, um, like when someone's cancelled that I always look for and will I'll use to make my own personal decision of of that person but I always look for their apology and like what's Mm -hmm. in their apology and how it's formed and what they're trying to say and if what they're trying to say is oh I was young then I think for me that's always like ah you know you were young your life afforded you the opportunity to be harmful to others and be rewarded for it and that's the choice you Mm -hmm. took um and if you can't see that now, then, you know, how can I trust in your allyship now? I think trust is a really challenging part of all of this for me. So interesting, isn't it? Using I was young as a justification is actually, I haven't thought about it before, but it's actually so different to being like, I was stupid. Yeah. Because those things are not necessarily linked to we have all been young and not necessarily all like I've definitely said things that I would not phrase in the same way now and that's because sort of culturally different and the way that we are socialized is different and and because people are stupid but there is a difference I think between I was young and even at that time I shouldn't have done that um yeah, yeah. that trust conversation is really yeah absolutely interesting. It's like the, we got the flip side of that conversation, which is oh, somebody's too old to have changed oh. their views. Okay, Charles Bukowski has a really fantastic poem on this about how um, we, we assume that elderly people can't change for some reason and then forgive them of really poor behaviour. But actually, if everyone, if everyone, they're the people who've overcome you know, the challenges of life and made mm. it, and then therefore they must have something that's to their privilege that not all of us will get. And then therefore they're the people who had the most you know, resources to, to change and to you know, move forward. And it's, it, we have such a warped view of what it means to grow older, I think, and what we can expect of our elders. And also, I don't think we're fair on, you know, we have some elders who are just like, just amazing and have learned those lessons and have taken mm. so much of their time and energy to pass it on. So, so I want to move on to what I think is going to become my favorite part of this and <laughs> that is pet peeves. So <laughs> my question to you is what are your pet peeves around doing the work that you do? Like what kind of, what would you wish was slightly different? I'm going to give you an example of mine to get us going. So one of my pet peeves is when um, people say, um, oh, I'm a white man. I always think like you're describing the most, um, 
like the most obvious part of your character in order to explain to me that you have understood a topic which is really complex and perhaps that indicates less than what you think and in fact what it shows me is that you don't know um you know much about the thing that you're talking about I guess you think that someone's saying that in saying that they think they're dropping a bombshell and yes. you're thinking what's next what's the yes. end of that how does yes. that round out exactly thank you yes yeah, so that's one of my pet peeves because I'm just like <laughs> like you know take it forward please do you have any pet peeves well, to build on yours, that happens to me a lot, especially in publishing. Mm. And so um, for both of my books, the te- there's not been a single black person on my team. Mm. And so, you know, editors would be like, well, I, I'm really sorry, I can't help being a white woman. I'm like, no, but you could pass this project on to someone or yeah. you could bring in a freelancer or you could, you could use that acknowledgement, not as a way to sort of be like, I'm sorry, I'm doing all I can do, but to be like, I'm sorry, I've realised I'm not the right person for this. And so, um, what else is annoying about the anti-racism? No, I think, I think what you've described is really powerful, actually. And, you know, I, that, that the issue is one thing to acknowledge an issue, a problem and also to acknowledge your part in it. It's another thing to have understood how you, you know, how you can be a part of the solution to that problem as well. And yeah. it's almost just the next direct logical step you know and I think that it would be really great for all people actively practicing anti-racism or allyship to challenge themselves to just go that step forward and to not you know it's like a bit of a contradiction isn't it because you are afforded privileges due to your race or your gender or your income status and instead of saying okay well I have these privileges so I'm going to do a b c and d to make sure that you know we're moving towards a more equal equitable society yeah we're just, just stopping like, it's at... not my fault I have these privileges these yeah expensive things that yeah. are push forward thing exactly and then it sort of always really falls to us doesn't it so like yeah. my response to them has, has been like okay I agree it's not your fault you're a black you're not a black woman yeah <laughs> but how do we then address that how do we then bring black women into this business how do we then make sure that we're not passing this work over to people who are going to make financial benefits from editing a book about blackness and about womanness instead of putting that money and that resource and building on the lived experience of, of people who should be profiting from this instead of putting that money back into the same systems and structures that it's always been a part of and you know I think the problem is I don't want to focus on the hard parts of being a black woman do you know what I mean it's so easy to do that in the current context and of course there's so many joys of being black women and you know you know more so than any challenge but um you have to both experience people the 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 oppressive factors of people's ignorance but then you also have to be the solution provider to them too and it's exhausting it's absolutely exhausting and it's so expected it's so yes like here is the worst and most painful part of my life yeah can you sell it yes like no and so in my book that's coming out later this year millennial black my favorite thing that I did with everyone who I interviewed for it and I was really lucky to be able to interview loads of really incredible black women was I asked every person, what is your favourite thing about being a black woman? Yeah. So what's your favourite thing? (laughs) (laughs) 
um my favorite thing about being a black woman is the community is the mm. fact that um we can be walking down the street and we will see another black woman particularly another black woman in my case with like natural hair mm. and we just have a moment you'll have a moment of eye contact you'll have a smile you'll have something that just says I see you yeah I see that you're here mm. and I don't think that people who haven't got that background have that sort of innate community and that's not to say that black women are a monolith don't all think or feel or act the same but there is something that brings us together and I really loved talking to all of the women who I was able to interview and just to hear all of their favorite things and so many of those are also around community and around that feeling of being seen and that feeling of that we've been through so much and we persist and we thrive and we set culture and we are cool as fuck and yeah. <laughs> like what more can you want yeah bosses straight around in every way now I'm, I'm with you I'm yeah I'm really proud to belong to this community and I just wanted to to have the impact on it on the world that it should like I feel like the women in my life that I know personally are the the wisest the strongest the most kind you know mm-hmm. they they move mountains to make the lives of the people around them better but never at the cost never requiring the suffering of others to do so you know yeah. and I want them to be our leaders like that's that's what yeah. I want to see um you know setting policies spending budgets making choices like that's what I want for this community but if I can jump in super quickly I think that is so much of the feedback that I've got about you and about the work Mm. that you've done and about the way that you've reached out to the community in 2020 and you know 2020 has been really hard for everyone and I think I feel comfortable saying 2020 has been especially hard for black people and we have had to find ways to survive and to thrive and I've heard from so many people how much sort of your community has meant to them and how much you're reaching out to them and making them feel like they're part of something and less alone has been to them. So I think you shouldn't underestimate the the role that Sancho is and that you yourself have played in that for people this year, last year. My goodness. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I could cry. I'm going to try not to. I'm going to try to hold it together. Um, but yeah, that's amazing. You know, I feel a bit lonely sometimes in Devon because, you know, very little of who I am is reflected back to me. Um, and this like digital community in particular has been transformative for like my understanding of myself. And yeah, I just, I just love that. <laughs> and if they're listening now, like, you know, I just hope we all can get together one day and dance and eat and just you know, yeah. celebrate life together. Um, so as we wrap up, what I'd like you, could you share the things that you want your readers to take away from this book? And could you tell us more about when we should expect Millennial Black to come out as well, please? Yeah, so what I really hope people take from Anti-Racist Ally is that you can do something. I think so often we're told that we can't do anything, we're too small, we're too unimportant, we're too invisible, we're too marginalised, we're too whatever that is. And that's a lie. And that's a lie that people tell you to stop you from changing the world because you cha- you can change the world. You absolutely can. And especially when you collaborate with people, you can make huge things happen. You can make huge changes and you can, 
you can be that change that you're waiting for and you can do that. And I really hope that Anti-Racist Ally shows people that if there is an area where you are not struggling, if there is an area where you have not been put down, then that is a privilege. And I think privileges are responsibilities and we can use those to make the world better in our own little corner or in our own little way or in one little area better for other people because it's so rare to find someone who is marginalized on all fronts Mm. um we all have areas of marginalization and privilege and we can use those privileges to make a change whoever we are and whatever group we are trying to support um and i think i hope that millennial black sort of builds on that so millennial black is really focusing on black women as a singular group and the workplace as a singular space and it says to black women I know that you have throughout your career been told that you are the problem and that you can't take a joke or that you make everything about race or that you sort of are too angry or too intimidating or whatever that is but that is not you that is systemic that is the language that people have learned is coded enough that it will keep us back without flagging to HR that they've done anything wrong it's sort of it's learned to be slippery it's learned to be elusive it's learned to be evasive and it's not you so it says about women here are the problems here is how it's not only you who's facing them and then it says business owners business runners senior people here's what you have to do to fix this because black women as a group largely did not make this problem we did not cause these issues and we are not often empowered enough to be in situations and positions where we can change them ourselves and so here's what you're missing out when you don't have black women in all levels and in the highest levels of your business and here's what you need to do to make the workplace not only bring those people in but then to respect and to cherish and to promote and to develop them in the same way that you would any other group um it's a relatively long answer to your question but i hope it makes sense well you know, I am so, so excited to read it. Like I, you know, that that journey of understanding that so many of the challenges I experienced um, in my work environments were not me, but reflections of a bigger systemic, systemic issue took me years to learn and like a lot of tears and a lot yeah. of stress. And I feel like I'm, you know, I'm still on that learning journey. So yeah, I'm, I, I'll be your first customer. I can't wait. Well, <laughs> sure. Have you got pre-orders up for it or are they going? We do. Yeah. We do. So yeah, I won't be your first then, but yeah, I'm <laughs> going to get on that list. And so should everybody listening now. Thank you so much, Sophie. Really appreciate your time and can't wait to just keep following what you're doing and just support you in any way that I can. Okay, listeners, so what did you learn? That fear of getting something wrong may be an excuse not to start, that we should want progress and learning for both our past and future selves. Well, now you know. So what are you going to do about it? I suggest starting Sophie's book, Anti-Racist Ally, from your local or black-owned bookshop. to my homies who be fighting in a war that will never end in the pursuit to